0: This is Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP Santa Cruz, streaming and podcasting at KUSP.org. The Seventh Avenue Project is next. <music> Greetings and welcome to the Seventh Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And today on the show, Hitting Bottom. We're going to dig way down to the very foundations of physical reality with Nobel Prize-winning physicist Frank Wilczek. Where mass comes from, why empty space isn't, and the search for a theory of everything. We discussed those and other topics in this interview from 2008, and I'm going to replay it today. Want to know where you come from? Well, keep listening. Okay, so coming up today, a conversation about the stuff the universe is made of. And when I say stuff, I mean something even more elementary than elementary particles. According to my guest, the physicist Frank Wilczek, particles like quarks and electrons and their properties like mass are secondary phenomena. They emerge out of something more fundamental, pulsating fields that fill all of space. Atoms, matter, you and I are like bubbles in this frothing cosmic champagne. Frank Wilczek has a name for this bubble bath. He calls it the grid, and he says, the grid is everywhere. What we perceive as empty space, he writes, is in reality a powerful medium whose activity molds the world. That's a quote from his most recent book. It's titled, The Lightness of Being, Mass, Ether, and the Unification of Forces. Frank Wilczek is a professor of physics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, and a co-recipient of the 2004 Nobel Prize in Physics. He and two colleagues won the prize for their discovery of something called asymptotic freedom, and we'll learn about that a little later in the interview, but first let me welcome Frank Wilczek. Frank, uh, thanks for joining me. Well, it's good to be here. (laughs) I think I, and um, probably a lot of other people, uh, when I imagine the universe and the way it's put together. Intuitively, I'm still a couple hundred years out of date. I'm kind of a Newtonian.
1: Yes. Well, the world that our senses present to us is very different from the world that analysis and careful experiment and using instruments and using your noodle to the ultimate reveals.
0: Guys like you, in other words. Uh, the picture that you give us. Well, the
1: community I represent and, <laughs> and uh, the centuries of effort that have gone into elucidating what the world really is.
0: Yeah. But the, uh, the picture I have, which I, I, I think of as you know, somewhat Newtonian, is that you have um, objects, bodies, things, and you have space, um, empty space. You have stuff and you have a place for your stuff, to use George Carlin's yes. phraseology.
1: <laughs> right, in modern physics... It's very different. We see space, the thing we ordinarily perceive as nothing's there, emptiness, as a medium, every part of which is the same, and every part of which kind of contains the whole universe in a microcosm. So it contains the f- quantum fields that can create and destroy all the particles, all the kinds of matter that exist. It, cre- it contains material components. It even weighs something. That's what I call the grid.
0: <laughs> yeah, and we, uh, we're going to take that step by step because I think it's almost too much to, to jump into that immediately. So, so help me um, gradually uh, you know, acclimate to this idea. Okay. <laughs> and let's, let's go back to a Newtonian idea that uh, there is this stuff, matter, and that the essence of matter is mass. And that that's about as far as you can go in describing matter, you see? It's got that's matter. right.
1: Newton assumed that mass was something that was a primary characteristic of matter, that you couldn't analyze it further. That's sort of as simple as it gets. That's the basic thing. And it was part of God's plan was to give everything a definite mass that would be preserved forever. But now... We know that even though that was a very fruitful idea and appeared to be extremely accurate for a couple of centuries, it's totally wrong. Uh,
0: You you got a (laughs) Catholic education when you were young. Yes. Yeah. When did you lapse and start believing that it wasn't just God-given creation?
1: Uh, I had a real crisis at the time of confirmation, which I guess was when I was 12 or 13, when I really studied things intensely and took them seriously because at the same time I was... um, Reading Bertrand Russell and learning some learning science and trying to take them both seriously at once led to a real crisis.
0: You had some Jesuits among the people educating you, too. So they may be planted yeah, seeds of, <laughs> of analysis and skepticism. Uh,
1: that may, yeah. Jesuits are great people. I love them, and, <laughs> and uh, they have a sense of humor. And uh, I'm not sure it's what they intended, but they certainly do. Uh, Make people think, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: But um, this idea, then, that uh, that Newton had—that mass is primary, that it's fundamental—certainly um, got its death blow when Einstein came along and said e equals m c squared.
1: Well, that I would say that was its first serious wound. <laughs>
0: okay, it wasn't the end? It wasn't the end?
1: No, because when Einstein uh, enunciated that principle, uh, it sort of indicated the vulnerability of of the conservation of mass. But uh, at that time, in 1905, there were no real experimental indications for it. It was kind of uh, a theoretical possibility. Got it. Uh, Nowadays, we see it very dramatically in experiments like at accelerators. You can have just an electron and a positron coming in, and the total of their mass is something. Many, many particles come out that can weigh thousands of times as much so mass is very far from being conserved. When I was a kid, I remember
0: it was my mother I think who said to me, uh, "Matter can neither be created nor destroyed." Uh, she was wrong <laughs> if she meant mass. Uh, yes. She was right if she meant mass slash energy.
1: Energy is energy is what we think is actually is more more fundamental and and uh, is conserved.
0: Now now E equals M C squared. Uh, energy equals mass times uh, the speed of light squared. Is often described as matter energy equivalence. I mean that that they're two sides of the same coin; that they're two forms of the same underlying thing. But you're saying I like
1: to say that the particles have mass, but the world has energy.
0: The world has (laughs) energy. Now, what do you mean by that?
1: So let's talk about E equals mc squared to begin with. Now that says that a particle with mass m, when it's at rest has an energy times mc squared when it's moving it has a larger energy it has the same mass the same m but the energy is different
0: you factor in velocity
1: yeah it's it's actually mc squared divided by square root of one minus velocity squared divided by speed of light squared there's a there's a definite formula fairly complicated (laughs) can (laughs) i jump in there right (laughs) away and just
0: say one thing that's a little confusing about that relativistically speaking, nothing has absolute velocity. It's all relative to something else. Right. So how, is energy relative then also? Energy is relative, yes. Oh, so a
1: moving observer would see a particle with a given energy having a different energy. Same yeah. mass, but different yeah. energy because it would be
0: moving. So um, you say that this was really the first nail in the coffin uh, of, of conservation of mass, or one of the first. Yes. At the beginning of the end.
1: Because it gave us the theoretical possibility that energy could be converted into mass, but didn't indicate how exactly in the natural world or when that occurred, you know, whether it ever occurred significantly.
0: Certainly, uh, the, the proof that mass could be converted into energy came with the Manhattan Project.
1: <laughs> right. So uh, that was 40 years later or so, and in the intervening time, people had been studying radioactive decays and, and seen some mass converted into energy. So mass not conserved. But uh, the real... Fruition, I think, of Einstein's uh, fondest hopes. I'm not even sure he had them consciously, but uh, uh, the idea that you could explain the existence of mass, of uh, in terms of energy, of underlying things that had no mass, that's really only came out of our work in the last part of the 20th century, starting with. Uh, are my work on the, uh, uh, quarks and gluons and how they interact?
0: <laughs> yeah. Now um, you mentioned a moment ago that uh, one of the clear disproofs that that mass is constant and uh, unchangeable is that when you smash certain particles together, yes, you get more particles than you started with in some cases.
1: You get yeah things that whose total mass, if you add up the masses of all the things that's produced, it could could weigh. Th- 30,000 times as much, t- or even more, typically.
0: One of the great examples you gave is that when you smash protons together, outcome...
1: More protons. <laughs> you can smash two protons together and have five or six protons together with some antiprotons and other stuff coming out in the final state. So uh, it's a new domain in which the idea that you have particles just as permanent objects the most basic building blocks of nature that move around and swerve and exert forces on each other comes to seem very superficial. It's a world of transformation and exchanges of energy and exchanges of identity.
0: Uh, I love the way you put it in the book. You said uh, of these um, experiments in particle accelerators where you bang protons together and get a kind of menagerie (laughs) of particles coming out. If you it, he say it's as if you smashed together two Granny Smith apples and got three Granny Smiths, a red delicious, a cantaloupe, a dozen cherries, and a pair of zucchinis. Yep, it's like that <laughs> exactly. People found when they,
1: when they put when they smashed together protons that you could have not only protons coming out but also new kinds of particles that were unexpected before. And, mm-hmm. and people had no inkling that they existed, and lots of them.
0: <laughs> so it was the, uh, the energy of that collision itself that was generating all those extra That's particles? That's right. The
1: energy is conserved. What happens is that you start with particles that are moving very, very close to the speed of light, so with enormous energy, uh, and you produce particles that have more mass but aren't moving quite as fast. Got so it. they have more... Mass energy, but less motion energy.
0: Now, now one particle at least has no mass. The photon. Yes. That is the particle that transmits light. Yes. Um, so it has zero mass, but can still mass.
1: have energy and still have momentum.
0: Now, I want to uh, take a side trip before further describing how mass is generated, how mass arises, uh, which is one of the major themes of your book. Um, you mentioned something in the course of describing these particles that make up protons and neutrons, quarks and gluons, these little (laughs) subnucleons that make up the particles in the nucleus of an atom, uh, are quarks and gluons. There's different kinds of them. They combine in different ways. Um, You say they are bits, and not just bits in the sense of pieces of of matter, but they're bits in another and much deeper sense, I'm quoting here, the sense we use when we speak of bits of information. They are embodied ideas. Yes. (laughs) Okay, what's up here?
1: Well, uh, the equations of quarks and gluons that we've developed are very specific uh, and very rigid embodiments of concepts, of ideas, (laughs) Uh, ideas of symmetry, basically. Uh, And those equations tell us all the properties of quarks and gluons. So there's a perfect mapping between ideas on the one hand and objects on the other. That's why, so there's this mapping between concept world and real world is flawless, and that's why I I think it's justified to say that they're embodied ideas.
0: Well, you have have a philosophical bent, so I want to press you further on this. I mean, whenever we get the description just right of something, let's say, in physics, uh, there will be a one-to-one correspondence between the thing and its description. I mean, right? But most people would say, there's the thing first and foremost. Then there's us humans who apply a description. Are you saying the reverse? Are you... What people would call a Platonist, who thinks ideas have a, their own independent reality.
1: Well, I'm not a Platonist in principle. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I didn't. I don't think it had to work out this way. I couldn't say a priori, but that's the way it does work out. Uh, there's a difference, I think, between this concept of embodied ideas and the rough idea that that you mentioned. That's much more common of a crude match between some model and reality. Uh, Often in economics or chemistry or in most applications of physics we use rough-and-ready equations that take input from measurements and if they're not correct we can change them a little bit and and we get a, a description to any desired accuracy of the phenomena we're interested in. This is different. These are equations that can't be changed Without ruining their principles they 're they're, they're really very rigid, and so they either describe reality exactly or they fall apart they make because you can't change them right so that it, this, this this mapping is qualitatively different, I would say it's much more precise and much more robust, although it's fragile <laughs> than than, uh, than the typical scientific Uh, situation.
0: Now, um, physics, um, certainly particle physics, has produced some very, very, very accurate, some would say perfect descriptions of reality down there. I mean, the the famous Schrodinger equation, which uh, describes the so-called wave function of a particle, is supposedly complete and perfect description. Well it's a
1: framework really and we believe ah. uh, the working hypothesis certainly is that it, it's a correct framework but what you uh, build with that frame in, inside that framework, how do you flesh it out, that's, that's, uh, that's up for grabs. I see, I see. <laughs>
0: well maybe I'm picking the wrong example but there are certainly equ- other equations that...
1: Well these equations for quarks and gluons, equations are a for a quarks and gluons and also you know, the equations of quantum electrodynamics have a certain perfection and closure and yes
0: uh coincidentally named QED QED that's right. <laughs> um so in those cases you're saying that when the description is perfect when it maps one to one when there's when it says everything you can know about something yes. and it says it exactly right do you start to believe it has a kind of separate reality as an idea that the the, the the thing itself well, it is the is, is expression of an idea. Yeah, I
1: think that means you've hit bottom and you can't go any deeper. So, so you, have, so you have a complete conceptual universe yeah. that maps one-to-one and uniquely uh, onto the real world.
0: <laughs> One reason I'm curious about this is I have met physicists who are Platonists. I mean, Roger Penrose is a Platonist. Uh-huh. Uh, he says so. Uh, you know that he, he's not sure how ideas have a reality, but they really do seem to have a reality, and mathematical concepts seem to have more reality than just some figment of our imagination, and he, you know that they're not less real in their own regard than are the objects we bump into in the world. Where do you, where do you stand on that?
1: Well <laughs> <laughs> that's. Um, I guess I'm not entirely comfortable with that level of abstraction, but but I love the idea that that you can have uh, equations that have uh, enough structure and enough uh, perfection that changing them in any way makes them worse or inconsistent on the one hand, and on the other hand, definite ways of mapping the action of those equations onto reality. And uh, if they work, even approximately, and can't be changed, that means that they're capturing reality. So it's telling us something very deep about what reality is, that its its workings are essentially mathematical, essentially conceptual.
0: Now, there are some people out there now who... who think an even more fundamental way to describe things is using computing models. Uh, models of information processing. Yes. And that in a sense physical reality is a manifestation of a processing uh, that is going on underneath everything. Yes. So bits, bits in the sense we use right. them in computer language, <laughs> right. are more fundamental <laughs> than its. That is matter, energy, yes. and other physical Well constructs. these equations
1: I've been talking about are, are of course Definite enough that you can teach them to a computer. That's part of what I mean by saying they're purely conceptual. You don't have to supply samples or uh, or refer to the external world. You can describe it all in 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 bits. Ultimately, Uh, the qualification I would say, however, that that is very important, is that the concepts that seem to be natural in describing the world. Include notions like uh, space and time that are, and that are continuous, and wave functions and things that yes, they can be mapped into zeros and ones and taught to a computer, but it's not a particularly natural or informative mapping. So, uh, sort of the the program of trying to deduce physical laws from uh, asking what what a computer finds easy to compute hasn't been very fruitful.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> so. Uh,
1: so it's a little more complicated than just than that. I, I guess uh, I have a lot of sympathy with the idea. It's a very attractive idea that the world is a computer and we're unfolding some computation, but that has not been very helpful in concretely in in. Figuring out what the laws are.
0: <laughs> so, so in a sense, old-fashioned physics—it it still works better than this newfangled information theory applied to physics.
1: Yeah, the information theory hasn't added much yet.
0: I'm, I'm, I'm sensing that there is this um, philosophical or ideological sort of movement, though, that that is um, attempting to use information terms in place of old, you know. Oh, I have a lot of sympathy for terms. the underlying yeah. idea.
1: Yeah. Uh, but I haven't been able to make it work, and certainly, certainly, the discussions I've seen uh, based on it are uh, extremely naive, and they have not contributed anything to uh, the progress of physics so far. One thing I will say is that it's not only a matter of principle that you can teach the equations to a computer, but uh, to really solve the equations in a useful way, in as Richer and complex a theory as QCD, so so as to actually compute things about protons, to build protons from the equations and figure out their mass and so forth. We're pushing the boundaries of computer technology. We're using the most powerful computers, novel architectures, novel kinds of parallel processing to do justice to reality. You mentioned (laughs) QCD. This is quantum
0: chromodynamics, which describes the interactions of quarks and and gluons. And And the the complexity is extraordinary because... Well, the equations, it's because
1: of how um, quantum mechanics and symmetry... Uh, interact with each other <laughs> and how uh, huge numbers of combinations. Lots of, flu- lots of fluctuations and many things can be happening simultaneously. Simultaneously, many different states. So, simultaneously. so in a sense, the equations are simple, mm-hmm. but the solution is very complicated.
0: <laughs> the number of combinations of states that can occur at every stage of this computation is so great yes. that it taxes the most powerful computers on earth. That's right. To compute just a few, uh, a few kinds of events.
1: That's right. To um, to build a proton Mm -hmm. (laughs) from the fundamentals, from the 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 fields of the quarks and gluons that that are described by the primary equations, uh, we harness something like ten to the thirtieth protons and neutrons, and make make them into parallel computers, run them at teraflop speeds, so they're doing uh, trillions of calculations, complicated multiplications per second uh, for months, so millions of seconds. Uh, and that enables us to do what nature, what every single proton does in nature, every 10 to the minus 24th seconds, you know, f- that is figure out how to organize itself and in, into a stable configuration with a definite mass. I, I like so, the way you put so that. We can
0: you, you, we harness ten to the thirty protons and neutrons, meaning the circuitry of the computer itself. Yes, right. All of those <laughs> atoms inside the circuitry of the computer. Right. You need all those atoms working really hard just to figure out what a one or two real atoms would do. That's right. <laughs> and it takes yeah. a lot. So longer. nature does it different. Yeah.
1: Which is sort of relates to our discussion of is nature a computer? There, mm-hmm. if, you want a, if you want a computer to do the things that nature does, at least. The way we know things at present, you, the computer has a hard time that rep- can can reproduce it, but it's not a particularly natural or simple way of uh, of mimicking nature.
0: <laughs> However, the the result of this computation that physicists have carried out turns out to be quite accurate. It describes yes the mass of elementary particles. Right,
1: it really realizes Einstein's dream of explaining mass in terms of energy, because we start with primary building blocks the gluons and the quarks that are exactly massless in the case of gluons almost massless in the case of quarks and from by solving the equations by finding out the stable configurations of these fields outcome uh excitations <laughs> that have energy and then if you divide by c squared that's the mass of of, of one of these stable configurations and you can compare the masses that you get that way with the masses of particles we observe and they match voila we explain the origin of mass and it really does come from energy we're children of light
0: so so you can you can definitely calculate it using the equations of quantum chromodynamics um, I'd like more of a qualitative description here, which you do give in your book uh, yes. about how mass, in the case of protons, arises. It's a pretty interesting story. It's yeah, it's and a it, three-step story. 3 <laughs> It takes a little bit of patience. Let, let's <laughs> walk through it in right. a simplified form, and it, it, it involves um, a discovery that you were involved in, and that, that that's right. So got you a part of that Nobel Prize.
1: Yes, so. Um, that discovery is called asymptotic freedom. Nice name. And it has that,
0: are you responsible for that?
1: No. <laughs> My uh, friend Sidney Coleman is responsible for the name. I, In retrospect, I think we should have had a sexier name. <laughs> uh, the concept is, one of its aspects is that if you start with a quark, uh, it produces a, gluon, a disturbance in the gluon field, just as a, an electric charge produces disturbances in electric fields. Uh, but what's remarkable about the disturbance produced by a quark is that it starts out small, very close to the quark, and then grows with distance. So you've, it's like the seed of a storm cloud that, that grows with distance, and the the cloud thickens, and the disturbance gets worse and worse. <laughs> so it's like the the influence, the force of this quark is small at short distances but grows at large distances unlike gravity which is the opposite, weaker other force. so we have this this cloud that's growing of disturbance and and energy is associated with that so you're building up energy in this uh, this disturbance.
0: If you have an isolated quark. If you have an
1: isolated quark, right and in fact if you had a completely isolated quark we calculate that the disturbance would grow and grow and uh, Cost an infinite amount of energy. Nature doesn't have an infinite amount of energy available, so uh, that's an explanation of why we never see individual quarks.
0: It would be infinite because the farther you get away, as you approach infinity, as you get to infinity, the, the more ener- disturbed the fields are. The disturbance would be
1: infinite. The more disturbed the fields are on that energy. So I have an image
0: of almost like a hurricane. In the center, it's maybe quiet. As you get farther away, it's crazier and more disturbed. (laughs)
1: Exactly. The the thing is whirling around. Uh, So so nature can't abide an isolated quark. The way uh, you can however uh, deal with a quark that's suddenly injected into the world is to also have a nearby anti-quark with uh, the opposite color charge. So uh, then the disturbances in the fields are kind of in the opposite sense and they can cancel each other.
0: Now, um, we hear, those of us who who have watched Star Trek or pay attention to physics at all, that when matter and antimatter, when a particle and its antimatter counterpart, like a positron and and an electron come together, they annihilate each other, and you get a lot of energy. Yes. You're talking about a quark and an anti-quark. Right. Don't they annihilate each other?
1: Well, they could annihilate each other if uh, if they come together. But mm-hmm. if they're orbiting around each other, if there's some angular momentum, or if they are different uh, mm-hmm. kinds of quarks, like an up quark and a, an anti-down quark, they can have the opposite color without actually being precisely the anti particles of each other. Got it. So those won't annihilate So you have to bring in an anti-quark to uh, cancel off this disturbance, which Mm -hmm. otherwise would cost an an infinite amount of energy. So to get the minimum energy disturbance, you would put them right on top of each other. And so that might seem to be the most economical way of accommodating quarks and anti-quarks. However, that's not the case in quantum mechanics because in quantum mechanics, uh, there's an uncertainty principle. The particles are not really point-like objects of the the Newtonian universe. They're wavicles. They have a wave character. And if you try to force them into too definite a position, put one on top of the other, uh, that's something the wave doesn't want to do. It doesn't want to get squeezed. And that costs a lot of energy too. This is what we call quantum mechanical localization energy. So that's a countervailing influence or force. So you have uh, cancelling the gluon fields, cancelling disturbance wants you to put the quark and anti-quark right on top of each other, but quantum mechanics says no, that's costly. Mm -hmm. So you have two things fighting it out, (coughs) Mm -hmm. and there has to be a compromise. And there are different ways of making the compromise. You can make them orbit in different ways. You can do things. Uh, But each of them has some finite energy associated with it uh and so there are different compromises with different energies. You take those compromises and their energies, divide by c squared, and we see them as the masses of the particles <laughs> that uh, are these solutions, these stable configurations of quarks and gluons mm-hmm. so that's that's our deep understanding of the uh, structure of the particles that are made out of quarks and gluons, the so-called hadrons, and uh, the origin of their mass.
0: We started our story by talking about this idea of a quark sort of springing up yes. and causing these disturbances in the gluon field, disturbances yes. that get larger and larger uh, with distance. So this cloud that builds an intensity the farther you get away from this quark. Are you saying that the quarks do spring up like this and then this process of pairing up with an anti-quark happens?
1: yeah some quarks sprung up in the Big Bang when you had lots of energy and lots of quarks rattling around uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and the density was such that you had every quark had just by accident would have an anti quark nearby to it, so the fields didn't really build up, and they more or less propagated freely. Okay. Then things expanded and cooled down, and the quarks had to find anti quarks and, and clever Got ways it. of organizing so that's so one way and then nowadays you also have at accelerators you can uh, produce very big concentrations of energy and quarks and anti-quarks moving in opposite directions get produced and then they have to start making clouds around them and organizing themselves. Or another way, of course, is in a computer you can pop a quark out, (laughs) uh, uh, conceptually, so to speak, or uh, mathematically, and then see this cloud how the clouds build up and interact with each other
0: got it so so i'm thinking of this quark anti-quark relationship as being sort of can't live with them can't live without it (laughs) exactly right there's one
1: refinement i should mention (laughs) just for correctness which is that besides an anti-quark canceling a quark another thing you can have is uh there are three colors three different kinds of color charges uh if you have all three represented, those also cancel each other out. And that, that's actually how protons are built from three quarks as, a, as opposed to a quark and an antiquark.
0: I'm Robert Polly, and this is the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio. Today on the show, physicist Frank Wilczek, talking about the fabric of the cosmos, the invisible fields that envelop us all. Frank Wilczek is a professor of physics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and a winner of the 2004 Nobel Prize in Physics. So that's one story of how mass arises in the case of protons. Yes, you get these rules for how quarks and antiquarks pair up in such a way that they're close but not quite on top of each other. Yes, that distance uh, involves energy. Energy is mass, or energy becomes mass. Yes, exactly. And that it's gives a you beautiful your proton. story. I think. It <laughs> is. It is. It's, it's, it, it actually and is. That, it, it's like right out of literature. <laughs> really. um, but um, that's just one sort of aspect of this bigger story you tell in in the book about what we used to think of as empty space or vacuum that is in fact this very active, very full and populated yes. space. Yes. And space isn't even the right word because space is actually a component, <laughs> not the underlying sort of bedrock. Right, you,
1: can, you have to call it something. I call it a yeah. grid because it's, it's a material. Then uh, We ordinarily perceive it as empty space, but in fact... Uh, with more refined perceptions, if we use instruments like accelerators or our noodles, <laughs> we learn that uh it's it's not empty at all it's uh, it's the primary building block uh, that can create and destroy particles that has spontaneous activity that even weighs something that it's sort of it's the
0: primal goo or something exactly yeah and you call it the grid that's your own coinage i think yes yeah yeah um, but it has different elements to it, it has different kinds of fields um, yes i'd like you just to walk us through this first of all tell us what a field is <laughs> And then tell us what these components of the grid, this this sort I've, of ocean we all swim in.
1: Right. So, a f- the the laws of physics of modern physics are uh, formulated in terms of fields, which are entities that uh, fill all space and exist for all time. So, uh, familiar examples perhaps are uh, uh, elect- electric fields that that uh, tell you. How charges will move if you put them down at this point in space or that point in space? They'll they'll have feel a force which is proportional to the electric field at that point. And Uh, this
0: force is just sort of there. It's it's just there, right? It's It's just there. Not only
1: that, but uh, so in the nineteenth century, the great development of nineteenth century physics, I think, was that these fields which were first introduced as kind of a mathematical convenience in describing forces on particles, took on a life of their own. Uh, When Maxwell perfected the laws of electricity and magnetism, sort of removing an inconsistency when he tried to put them all together, he introduced an effect that changing electric fields can produce magnetic fields.
0: Which is when how you, we generate electricity, moving exactly. magnets, electric The basis of a lot
1: field. of uh, technology. Yeah. But then, uh, when you put those two ideas together, you can have changing electric fields that are producing changing magnetic fields, which then produce changing electric fields, and the whole thing it takes on a life of its own, and can propagate as a self-renewing disturbance. And Maxwell calculated that these disturbances, these new kinds of fields taking on a life of their own would propagate at the speed of light and he proposed that that is light and to this day that's our best understanding of what light is it's changing electric and magnetic fields and it's a disturbance in those fields it's a disturbance in those fields right Uh, predicted additional kinds of light that hadn't been known at that time radio waves and infrared and ultraviolet and all those things which x rays all those things turned out to be in maxwell's equations that uh, and then uh, in our experience in the twentieth century uh, uh, we vastly generalized that so that with the the way we deeply understand all the different fundamental particles is that they're kind of disturbances in underlying fields that that the it's really the fields that are primary these space filling entities that yeah, that really gets to the bottom of things and the particles we sense and that were sort of the primary objects in the old Newtonian physics and now are seen as epiphenomena, as disturbances in the more primary underlying fields.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um,
1: so that's one big aspect of the grid.
0: <laughs> and I'm trying to think of a good um, sort of real tangible metaphor for that. I mean, I said I referred earlier to these fields as the ocean we all swim in, or they're the putting well, they're the putting green that we put on <laughs> you know. uh, yes,
1: but uh, they're a little bit different because uh in space ordinarily uh, they're fluctuating, mm-hmm. they have spontaneous activity, these mm-hmm. are called virtual particles or quantum fluctuations, uh, but their average is zero, mm-hmm. so they're, they're very active, but their average value is zero however there are f- and in that sense uh they're not materials they they're not stable materials they're they're this fluctuating stuff this uh, seething activity uh but they're also materials <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> we've discovered uh one that's not as famous as it should be it's really profound uh is something that doesn't even have a name usually but i i, I just call it qq bar sort of in the spirit of the Borg or something. Because yes. <laughs> it's it's a, quite literally, space-filling material. Uh, physicists technically would call it sigma mesons, sigma mesons filling all space, that we sense through its influence on how other particles move and it changes their properties. And not only that, but this material supports disturbances, supports waves, that uh, we can sense quite concretely as a new kind of concentration of energy, a new kind of particle. Those are pi mesons, very, very common uh, particles that you produce at, uh, at accelerators and are very important in understanding atomic nuclei. So we're embedded in this medium, very, very reminiscent of the old... Ether, <laughs> Ether, which is what I was going to ask you about. Uh, except not for light, but for pi mesons. Right. And then we have reasons to think in our modern understanding, our modern core theory of the weak interactions, uh, leads us to infer that there's another such medium. We don't know what it is. But we know its name. It's the, called the Higgs field. <laughs> and a big goal of the LHC will be to see really what that is, what's it made out of.
0: The Large Hadron Collider, the big particle accelerator that just started operating uh, near Geneva uh, at CERN, but the reason we need to um, postulate the existence of the Higgs field
1: it's because with this, there's this ocean that's distorting our motion.
0: <laughs> Something's <laughs> causing some changes it's that we can changing observe. Our,
1: yes, changing. And it's not
0: the the bending our, of space time from general relativity. No, no. This is a, and d- it's this is not a, the electromagnetic field. No, it's
1: something different it's that we have to uh, add. It's uh, there's a lot of experimental evidence that uh, for it, and uh, it's been tested in the hypothe- basic hypothesis that there's this complicating medium. Uh, has been very fruitful in explaining experimental results, but the missing ingredient is,
0: what's it made out of? <laughs> uh, the more you talk about these fields that comprise this thing called the grid, mm. or that you call the grid, this, uh, the more I'm picturing us, meaning us objects, as, as being like dumplings in a pot of boiling water. We're just, you know, we're at the mercy yep. of <laughs> all this activity. Fortunately, it's Pretty, uh, <laughs> in
1: it's, it's pretty stable uh, in its repose, right? <laughs> we have to work very hard to get it excited.
0: <laughs> but it does hark back to that old idea you just mentioned, the ether, which is a sort of pre-20th century idea that physicists had, that right. if light is like a wave and it travels, what's it a wave in? Right. I mean, a water wave travels in water, a sound wave travels Yes. You know, we've had air to, we've So
1: in this modern reincarnation of the ether, I call it the grid, we... Uh, We can revive the basic idea, I think we can keep the basic idea that the primary ingredient of reality is a space-filling medium, but we have to be more imaginative and more uh, um, forthcoming Mm -hmm. (laughs) in uh, allowing nature to tell us what the material is. So, uh, in a sense, if you say... The uh, ether is these electric and magnetic fields. Those do fill all space. They have their own activity, their own life, and really it is vibrations in those fields that make light. So those, that's the ether. Uh, but uh, people were hoping to have a more Newtonian kind of atomic particle uh, picture of what was vibrating. That doesn't work. But if you're willing to let nature tell you what does the vibrating and, and sort of open your mind to it, then there is something that's doing the vibrating that has properties you can discuss that does have a life of its own. And so I think it, it's fair to say it's a component of reality. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. No such thing as a vacuum in the old sense of the word, of pure nothingness. No. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh,
1: if you tried to remove all the spontaneous activity, uh, you know, zero that out, that would actually be a state of very high energy. That's why the activity is spontaneous because nature abhors a vacuum. It's, yeah. <laughs> uh, if you tried to remove uh, not only the activity of the fields but the fields themselves, that would take us into a realm that we can't accommodate in our equations of fit in our framework so it's it literally is not possible uh, in the current framework of physics to to think about just a void that's nothingness
0: (laughs) now now the grid this medium that uh, is spread throughout the entire universe that is in a sense the universe it has energy it can have energy it can have energy it has
1: different states some of them have energy have energy, some of them, some of them uh, have less energy. Less energy. But I guess, well, maybe what you're alluding to, and it's true, is that uh, a marvelous discovery of recent years is that the, there's space itself, if you like, the grid, has a non-zero density. Mm-hmm. This is sometimes called Einstein's cosmological constant, sometimes called the dark energy, but it's a constant density as let's let's make we sure we understand that, that term, density. Density means usually means per mass unit volume. per volume. It's a mass per volume, exactly. So
0: this thing has mass.
1: Yes, right. It, it has a weight. <laughs> it has a weight, right. Wow. So it's really a material in, a, in the in most the classical sense yeah. of something that weighs. The weight is very small, to be sure, and it's kind of unusual in that it not only has weight but also exerts negative pressure. It pushes which is things out. Which pushes things out but uh, that's not in, unexpected theoretically that's what we that's what's consistent with relativity theory actually uh,
0: and
1: uh, and it's really there <laughs> it's, it's what we call dark energy it's what we call dark energy it
0: fills the universe and it is pushing things away from each other such right. that the universe is expanding it's accelerating a, so at an the, ever the, faster rate
1: yes that's right
0: I'm Robert Polly, and this is the Seventh Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. My guest today is MIT Professor of Physics and Nobel Laureate Frank Wilczek. We're talking about the basic ingredients of the universe, including the busy matrix formerly known as empty space, which Frank Wilczek calls the grid. This this grid is this, this this very active and substantial medium and things can bubble up from it, materialize yes. out of it. Is yes. that right? These
1: are virtual particles or quantum fluctuations, right? Yeah.
0: And that's something I wanted to ask you about. Virtual particles. Yes. Uh, whenever I read about particle uh physics and uh, interactions between particles, these little guys called virtual particles come yes. in. And I'm always wondering what what distinguishes them from the regular uh, variety of particle?
1: Well, they're the spontaneous activity in the fields that that kind of bubbles up and passes away. Uh, Virtual particles are particles that, sort of, by definition, we don't observe (laughs) as physical objects. They uh, appear in our equations. Uh, But in the equations, what it is is that you have a particle typically accompanied by its antiparticle being spontaneously created, Uh, moving away from each other for a very short time and then they only they don't get very far and then they come together and, and annihilate again so it's these things with a kind of very temporary existence but as one particle antiparticle pair disappears other ones spring up and so you have this kind of froth i wrote a sonnet about virtual particles
0: yeah do you have it committed to memory
1: I think so, more or less <laughs> Let's, well, let's, let's hear it. Okay. So Beware of thinking nothing's there Remove what you can Despite your care Behind remains A ceaseless seething Of mindless clones beyond conceiving They come in a wink And dance about Whatever they touch is touched by doubt What am I doing here? What should I weigh? These thoughts can lead to rapid decay Fear not the terminology's misleading. Decay is virtual particle breeding, and seething though mindless, can serve noble ends. The clone stuff exchanged is a bond between friends. To be or not, the choice seems clear enough. But Hamlet vacillated, and so does this stuff. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Bravo! Now, so so these are sort of ghostly particles that spring up and disappear. Uh, in the blink of an eye, I mean, much faster than an eye blink. But why call them virtual? I mean, there are other particles that spring up and disappear that we don't call virtual. Uh, why are these guys special?
1: These guys can't be observed in principle. That's, in principle. That's, that's the whole Impossible. The they're like, uh, another analogy I like to use is that uh, they're like the lava seething up under under the surface of a volcano. And as long as they don't percolate into existence as mm-hmm. long as there's no vent for them then they're virtual particles but if you make a vent or if the ex- if the volcano blows and they come into reality we don't call them virtual particles anymore then they're real particles or, or
0: <laughs> like magma becomes lava if it's exposed exactly yeah. right yeah uh,
1: so it's the same thing but exposed to view
0: <laughs> got it now there's a certain way of of describing uh Physics at the at the particle level that says that every influence is communicated by a particle. Yes. Right. By so the exchange of virtual particles. By the exchange of particles. So even gravity, you know, there's yes. a there's a hypothetical particle called a graviton. graviton right. Yeah. So we need these virtual particles to oh, fulfill yes. that description.
1: Yes, that's where the concept comes from. So, and when they, you worked out this field description of the forces, uh, all the influences are local. So you can't have action at a distance. To have one particle mm-hmm. exerting a force on the other, it has to create a disturbance, which propagates through space. And those are the those are the virtual particles. And, the, and
0: the virtual particles are the way, in a way that that the grid speaks to. Absolutely,
1: things. it's the way. It's the it's through these virtual particles, through this spontaneous activity, that. Uh, and In tapping into that that particles feel forces and then that's our deepest understanding of what the primary forces are so exchange of photon, virtual photons gives the electric and magnetic forces exchange of gravitons gives the gravitational force exchange of gluons gives the strong force and so on hmm.
0: <laughs> you know um you end your book by talking of course about one of the the, the greatest dreams of physics the uni- uh, unified theory yes the theory that brings everything together into, I think, a reasonably simple set of equations? With well,
1: that? yeah, simpler. <laughs> and, I mean, simpler in a very special sense. Simpler in concept. Uh, if you ask how many moving parts they have, it's more. So, yeah. so just sometimes uh, we have to introduce additional particles to, to make patterns. Uh, so there's a better pattern, there's more coherence. In and, and that sense, they're simpler. But in the sense of... Uh, if you count particles, say, they look more complicated. It's like uh, Mozart, when the emperor's criticism that there were too many notes, but the point is that the notes are all there for a purpose, and when it all fits together and, and is perfect in its way, Uh, It's not a valid objection to say that there are too many notes or too Mm. many particles. Mm. (laughs) Well,
0: (laughs) way back when, you know, zoologists uh, or botanists used to spend their time endlessly cataloging species. Yes. And they'd make longer and longer lists. Right. Along comes Darwin and says, okay, that's great, but I can give you something much simpler. (laughs) Uh, Random variation and natural selection can produce all of these beasts and all of these plants. Yes. And that's what you physicists are working toward. Uh, yes,
1: in a sense, of course. But the the driving principle for us is not, of course, natural selection, no, or evolution, but no. symmetry. Mm-hmm. We try to make uh, the equations have very coherent patterns. So it's, it's in a sense, it's like we have a puzzle of which we have filled in many pieces, but then we see that there are little holes, and so we guess.
0: Mm-hmm
1: if if we've assembled the puzzle correctly and that these holes are something real and we predict that they're going to be filled in. <laughs> yeah.
0: And you think we're getting there?
1: I think we're about to make a giant step, right? I think we have beautiful ideas that are really ripe for uh, another big step in achieving a unification. And the LHC is just the tool we've been waiting for
0: to see if those ideas are correct. <laughs> now, interestingly, when we talk about unification... I don't think the phrase string theory is anywhere to be found in your book.
1: Well, it is there. Is it there? (laughs) It's in the glossary. It's in the glossary. It's (laughs) not in the index. It's mentioned here and there, right? Yeah,
0: but it doesn't come up very often. No, it doesn't. Does that mean that uh, you're one of those folks who doesn't think we need string theory for for unification?
1: Well, we may need it eventually, but I wanted to um, start from the phenomena and uh, proceed in the spirit of... uh, Newtonian conservatism, not multiplying hypotheses, or Occam's razor, if you like, trying to do with the minimal hypotheses that enable you to explain things and make uh, concrete predictions about what comes next. Uh, String theory is a valiant attempt to take a huge leap Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, on the basis of some perceived necessity to have mathematical consistency in the quantum theory of gravity and uh, deduce from that the phenomena. But that's proved to be a very, very difficult enterprise and so far hasn't been as fruitful, I don't think, in in terms of uh, making concrete predictions for what's going to happen next as this more empirical-slash-aesthetic approach of trying to complete the patterns that are in the data as revealed so that's what I've emphasized. That's what I that's the kind of physics I like. I mean, I like I like simple theories that explain a lot and string theory is kind of the opposite. <laughs>
0: and, and the simplicity that's embedded in the ideas that you're um that that you favor right now the the, the central organizing principle is symmetry. Symmetry. Definitely. symmetry yes. That um we might have a model uh let me just take my very very clumsy stab at this. We might have a model that um is is unified and and simply by rotating certain aspects of it you give rise to this particle or that particle or this kind of interaction yes, or that kind of exactly. interaction and if it gets complete enough, and i'm kind of i tend to be visual, so I'm thinking of <laughs> a giant snowflake you know uh-huh exactly yeah, yeah that's and a that, good analogy and, right. and that and that and that as, as you rotate the snowflakes you can you you can see from one angle oh that produces a quark, a a certain kind of quark, or that produces a certain kind of graviton. Right, but it's really
1: the same thing rotated. That's precisely, that's a a very good analogy. And uh, what we like is a a system of equations that's symmetric enough that you can transform them in such a way that what used to be an electron becomes a quark, or becomes a photon, or becomes anything, Mm -hmm. so that by looking at the the same equations in different ways, uh, all the different kinds of matter and all the different kinds of interactions uh, can be seen as different aspects of the same thing. That's that's the modern embodiment of the vision of unification Mm -hmm. that, that we're making big strides towards. I think... We're about to make big strides. We're we're about to get experimental confirmation of ideas that are a big stride in that direction. Hmm.
0: (laughs) Going back to um, one of the the dominant themes in your book, that is this, um, this medium in which we all reside, that envelops all of us, that you call the grid, what we used to think of as empty space. There's a paragraph in your book I'd like you to read about that. Okay.
1: Looking down on the valley of everyday reality, we perceive much more than before. Beneath the familiar, sober appearances of enduring matter in empty space, our minds envision the dance of intricate patterns within a pervasive, ever-present, effervescent medium. We perceive that mass—the very quality that renders matter sluggish and controllable—derives from the energy of quarks and gluons ever-moving at the speed of light compelled to huddle together to shield one another from the buffeting of that medium. Our substance is the hum of a strange music, a mathematical music more precise and more complex than a block fugue, the music of the grid. Frank, thank you. Thank you.
0: Frank Wilczek is Herman Feshbach, professor of physics at MIT. His latest book is called The Lightness of Being, Mass, Ether, and the Unification of Forces. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'm here every Sunday, noon to one. Brett Taylor and the Latin Quarter are just ahead, so keep your dial tuned to KUSP.